I, I saved those things and I don't know that I understood archiving at that moment, but I wanted to sort of preserve those things. And now it's become like a passion, a mission. It is my legacy. It is my way of making sure that we don't get lost because as I started to look for Zora, I came to understand how important um, preserving those things are. I also came to understand that the impetus for what gets preserved and what doesn't is really left to people who don't look like us. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Sight Black Women podcast. Today, we listen to my interview with Professor Irma McLaurin, who is an American activist, anthropologist, administrator, consultant, professor, and writer. She has provided leadership, mentored, made grants, written poetry, creative nonfiction, and policies, all informed by social justice. In all of these areas of expertise, Professor McLaurin has consistently prioritized her commitment to social justice. She currently is a senior faculty member at the Federal Executive Institute, teaching leadership theories to GS-15 and Selective Executive Services federal employees across all agencies and sectors. She also coaches and designs custom programs for U.S. agencies and foreign clients. But most importantly, she is also the founder of the Irma McLaurin Black Feminist Archive, an amazing project that tries to bring light to Black women's intellectual contributions by archiving our work. In this episode, she talks about that archival practice as a radical practice of citation. What does it mean to save and preserve our thoughts for the next generation? I am excited to share with you because even throughout this conference, as I've talked to black women about, so what are you going to do with your papers? I get this glazed over look and people actually say, well, I didn't think I had anything that would be worth, you know, that would be worth archiving or that would be valuable or that anyone would be interested you know, in my work. And so one of the functions of this archive, which is called the Irma McLaurin Black Feminist Archive, you know, and it said it's gonna be housed at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, which is where I did my degrees. One of its functions is to really signal to black women that the intellectual labor that we do in the academic fields is important work to signal to activists who spend their time doing that the speeches they gave, the flyers that they created, um, all of these things are important and they need to be preserved. And in some ways, the impetus for this was the research that I've been doing on Zora Neale Hurston for almost two decades now. Uh, I wanted to tell the story of Zora Neale Hurston and anthropology, what I called Zora Neale Hurston and the shadow of anthropology, because I didn't feel that the discipline had given her it, her due. And that as we were looking, as when I came into anthropology, I'm a born-again anthropologist, so late life. Um, <laughs> In the 1980s, this is at the moment that interpretive anthropology is just coming into being. People are looking at life history methodologies, and so I come in with this notion. And over the course of after finishing my field work in Belize, um, I began doing this research on Zora, trying to find her field notes and some insight into her methodology so that I could document this. Now, some of it, her ethnographic eye is clearly 
evident in her in her literature. She was a literary person before she was an anthropologist. She was writing poetry and short stories. But if you look at her work, it is in fact a blending, a fusion of both ethnography and literary techniques. And so when I look at something like writing culture or women writing culture, and I listen to people like James Clifford and this idea that somehow anthropologists have invented this way of this reflexive way of writing, I'm thinking Zora been there and done that. And she was doing it in the 1920s and the late <laughs> 1930s, but she's not been given her due. She's not cited as one of the progenitors, if you will, of this particular way of doing anthropology. Even in terms of native anthropology, people have not given her her due. In Mules and Men's, she is very clear and intentional. I went back to Eatonville because they would, they would keep me honest. I went back because that's what I know. That's what native anthropology is. But it also is her talking about the complications of when you're from a place, what the expectations are, and then you're trying to enter it with a different mindset. And so you're having to navigate all of these you know, these complexities of how people see you, how you see yourself, what is the purpose of your being there, how you want to collect stuff, how in some ways you don't want people to assume that you know because you want to draw out of them, extract from them their knowledge. And so you've kind of got to play like you don't know, but they kind of know that you do know because, girl, you're from here. So it's a very sort of multi-layered way of engagement that, that, that occurs in this process. And so one of the things that happened is that as I went on the search to try and document Zora's approach to anthropology, I keep hitting a wall. There's not much there. Some of that is a function of Zora's own economic, what I would call the political economy of Zora's positionality. This is a black woman in the late 1920s and early 30s who is trying to be an independent writer at a moment in time when what was available for black women as employment, first of all, there wasn't much, okay? This is pre-desegregation. They're either domestics. If they have some level of education, they're a teacher or they're somebody's wife, okay? There is no place for someone like Zora. And I think in some ways, uh, how she's been interpreted by male scholars, black male scholars of the Harlem Renaissance has something to do with she didn't fit the norm. Mm -hmm. And so I'm on this search trying to discover things and I'm finding in her letters, but I'm looking for these field notes and I'm trying to find out, you know, exactly where this material is available. And it's when I start looking at her, her letters uh, that I discovered this correspondence at the Beinecke Library between Zora Neale Hurston and Langston Hughes. Her letters to him are archived. His letters to her are lost because Zora moved around a lot. She put stuff in storage. She couldn't afford to get it out. Who knows where it is? But he saved her letters to him. And those letters are a treasure trove because in it, she is talking to him about her methodology in the field. In it, she talks about black folks are a performative people. This is before we started talking about performance theory. Zora had been there and done that. She's talking about 
discovering this guy named Cujo, who is this old African, and now we've got this novel that she wrote called Barakol, but she had already been talking to, to Langston about it. Now, how is it that those things are in the, in the Beinecke? Carl Van Vechten, who was a friend of the librarian whose name was Beinecke, for whom it's named after now, actually solicited from Zora and from Langston there was Charles S. Johnson who died early, and Van Becton wanted to honor him, so he created this collection, the Charles S. Johnson Collection. And he invited Zora and Langston to put their papers to send him stuff. So there are postcards from Zora. She used to actually make Christmas cards, handmade them. And so if you've ever seen the book by her, her niece, Lucy Hurston, it's like a picture book. Those are all facsimiles of things that are in the Beinecke. So it is this treasure trove, and as I'm looking at these letters, I'm finding out that the letters are, in fact, a form of field notes, you know. And so I'm now inspired by Carl Van Vechten because the original manuscript of Their Eyes Are Watching God are there. And when you hold that manuscript in your hand, I don't know if they let you do it now, they did then, but you turn it over, and that famous line, black women is the muse of the earth, you find is an insertion. Zora didn't just type that up and boom, it came out of her head. It came afterwards. It's like she's rereading the manuscript and it comes to her and she inserts it and types it on the back, you know? And it's like, now you see process. You, do, you know, we have the finished novel, but now you get to see how it's constructed. And she herself is the person who sends those. They're telegrams, you know, they're letters, they're cards, but there is this treasure trove of correspondence between her and Langston. And the other thing that it does for me is that it, it debunks this idea that Zora and Langston were antagonistic. I believe that they had a unique relationship. I think something intruded on that. And I've come to find out um, there is uh, a woman, uh, Louise, um, I want to say Howard, I, have to, I can't think of her name right now, but she was, she was brought in as a secretary. Uh, she was actually encouraged to work with them so they could get the play mule bones done uh, very quickly. I think Zora and Langston were working on this. If you read the letters, I am convinced that the, the content of Mule Bones is Zora's material because she's writing him and sending him examples of what she's discovering in the field. So the play is actually based on her work. They're working on it collaboratively. And then Louise comes in and it's almost like she's the third wheel and it kind of creates a disruption. Langston's cool with it, Zora's not. And that kind of creates a breach. But the, the, what you find is that the strength of their relationship, they do part company, not in a, in a nice way, and they don't really speak again. Two people with big egos. But if you look at what happened to Zora, one of the things that happens to her is that she is accused of having inappropriate relationships with a young boy, and her friends drop her. Zora is, is supposed to go to trial. And the one witness she calls is Langston Hughes. Now, if you think about that, at that moment in time, what she's being charged with, the one person that she trusts her life to because he's going to be a character witness, is somebody that she hasn't spoken to. But that's who she trusts. So to me, there's a strong bond there that even though they had this discord, that's who she trusted. 
It turns out he doesn't have to testify because the charges are dropped, they turn out to be false, but her reputation is ruined. So there are little things like that that come through in those letters. It's in the correspondence, it's in photographs, it's in little you know, postcards that people send. And that really, I think, sort of stuck with me. I've always in some ways been an archivist. I have letters and things from graduate school, cards people have sent me. I believe I actually have a letter, a correspondence with Lucy Hurston years before I even knew that I was gonna become an anthropologist. Uh, I, I just came across a letter with Robert Hemingway. Uh, I had sent him some of the, one of the pieces. I had written these short essays on Zora and I was talking to him about this autobi this biography of a black woman journalist which got me into anthropology and he was giving me some insight to, well, why don't you talk to my editor at Beacon? I have that letter. You know, I was uh, a research assistant for Chinua Achebe and so I have the correspondence when he goes back to Nigeria and I'm actually the representative for the magazine in the United States. You know, so I, I saved those things and I don't know that I understood archiving at that moment, but I wanted to sort of preserve those things. And now it's become like a passion, a mission. It is my legacy. It is my way of making sure that we don't get lost because as I started to look for Zora, I came to understand how important um, preserving those things are. I also came to understand that the impetus for what gets preserved and what doesn't is really left to people who don't look like us. More than over 95% of most archivists are white. And so they decide who, what gets preserved, who gets into it, and who doesn't. And so I was wanted to be very intentional and in some ways create our own agency. If we don't think our work is worth preserving, who will? If we don't raise the money and, and, and contribute resources to make sure that this archive is, has an endowment, that it has the resources to be able to, to, to have the papers that are contributed processed. So I am now going around and actively soliciting people and I'm saying, in addition to putting your papers in here, I'm going to ask you to make a financial commitment as well, whatever it is you think you can give. But if we don't think that our work is worth investing in, why should we expect someone else to give us money for it? You know, so for me, I want to make this. You know, Spelman has its collection. A lot of it is very much centered around people who had an affiliation with Spelman. Mine is interdisciplinary. It has no geographical boundaries. And I was specific about being interdisciplinary because my work cuts across the humanities and the social sciences. I consider myself a biocultural anthropologist, so I'm also interested in the sciences. But I want photographs and letters, and I'm, I want to send a message to black women, even if it's not published. It doesn't matter because we are actually not the best um, determinants, you know, determinators of what is important. We don't know what's important. What looks like nothing now, five or ten years or fifty years from now, someone can say as they did with Zora's novel, oh my goodness, the publishers turned it down because it was all in, in dialect. They wanted her to make it standard English. She said no, and it sat there for almost now a hundred years. You know, it's, it's, it's been sitting there, right? Until someone who was a researcher discovered it and people said, oh my goodness, another example of Zora's genius. 
So what looks to us like nothing could be considered genius tomorrow. And we know that black women are geniuses. We know that black women are artists. And more importantly, it is not confined to just academics and scholars. I want this to be a place where people who are activists can send the talks that they gave or the flyers that they made. All of those are important things. Absolutely. There's so many gems in what you just said. And, and I just feel full listening to you because I think that for me, one of the things that's so important about the project of citing black women is really reminding us that the things that we do are important. And that just because somebody throws our work away or does not pay attention to it or does not engage with it doesn't mean it's not good work. And I think for me, Zora Neale Hurston has always been a real inspiration in that regard because she got so many rejections. Yes. Right? She got so many rejections. And yet what we know now is exactly what she said is that she was brilliant. And, and part of the rejection was about her being way before her time and yes. being somebody who was truly on the cusp of the future, yes. right? And so there's a way that archiving is really a political project for Black Yes, women. absolutely. It is a way for us to give agency to ourselves, but it is also a way for us to take control of who gets to construct the narrative. Because if the material culture is not there, if the papers are not there, there are no photographs, then people can pick and choose from what they find here, there, or anywhere, and they construct the narrative for us. This way, black women, whether they consider themselves feminist, womanist, or none of those labels, it doesn't matter. I am building a home for you, and that's what's important. So case in point, in Durham, North Carolina, there's a woman I met when I was at Bennett College for Women. Uh, she's an artist and her mother, she's lived with her mother. Her mother, it turns out, is an anthropologist. Her mother is now 94 years old and it turns out that she was the first black woman to get an uh, anthropology, a master's degree. It took her eight years because part of the conversation, as her daughter now recounts it, because her mom's memory is not so great, but as her mother recounts it, part of the what it was why it took so long is because her professors kept telling her, we don't know what we can do with you. In other words, they couldn't imagine a black woman anthropologist in the field, so they kind of kept her in the program to kind of let her do some stuff, right? Because the world was not ready for her. She's 94. And so, you know, they got hit by some of the storm. And so she's boxing up papers. And, and she said, you know, she said, and I promised my mom I would take care of her papers. And I said, well, you know, now you can tell her, Vita, that they, there's a home for it. You know, put them in a box and we will then figure out how to get them to the university. So that's my mission is to make sure that this woman, and who knows what she wrote back then probably didn't get published because again, they couldn't imagine that a black woman could write anything of value. That doesn't mean it wasn't important. That doesn't mean it wasn't good. That just meant that the world was not ready to receive her. And so there could be treasure troves in those papers, the observations that she made. Her daughter is an artist, but she can speak French and she can speak Arabic because her mother took her with her as that she was traveling around. 
you know, but she didn't, she didn't necessarily get the, the academic support because remember, white institutions weren't letting us in. You know, one of the other things that's going into this archive is a video series that I started called Why Anthropology. And I began that way before they did Why Sociology. I think they may have like picked up on the idea from me. And part of why I did that is that I went to the Smithsonian to look at the archives that they had on Zora. I found one notebook, which were notes that she kept on King Harold when she was uh, doing that novel, but nothing, nothing else really. But what they did have was these hour-long interviews that went on and on of all these white anthropologists. You know, and I'm looking and I'm thinking, and it was actually done by the institution I was at there at at the time, the University of Florida, and they go on for hours and hours, and I'm just like looking at, you know, reels and reels or videos of, you know, whiteness, right? <laughs> and I'm just thinking, so where are the black folk? You know, we know from the Afro-American anthropology book that there are black people doing anthropology. Carolyn Von Day, you know, who's, you know, who's doing this in the 1920s and 30s. You know, we know that there are people who are doing this. And so at that moment, I think, you know, part of it is that when people look at us, they look at us and go, well, why anthropology? You know, why are you as a black person in some ways participating in this discipline that has this colonial history? My response is, quite simply, there is no Western intellectual tradition that is without, you know, that, that, that is perfect. Absolutely. There is none that doesn't have a history that in some way was complicit, whether it's English literature, to art, to whatever it is, they all got issues. Absolutely. What I do see in anthropology is a discipline that has turned the critical eye, the lens on itself in this whole notion of cultural critique. And that, in that sense, it has opened up spaces for feminist anthropology, for black anthropologists. I mean, black anthropologists, the organization came into existence in the 70s, 60s or 70s, but black anthropologists were involved well before then. In many ways, we, we, we own, you know, we appropriate Du Bois as an anthropologist because the kind of sociology he was doing the ethnogra was ethnographic and was not in the same vein. It was more in the tradition of anthropology than it was in sociology. So we claim him, and Faye Harrison has written about that connection. And so this was a discipline that was not perfect, but there were some openings and some spaces. And I don't know that I would have been able to, to do the kind of writing that I've done in anthropology if I could have done that in other spaces. Uh, I have a degree in English, so I'd been there and done that. I knew what their limitations were and felt that I needed a different kind of space. And so at the moment that I hit, that I entered anthropology, there was this interest in ethnography as genre, where we're really looking at the literary aspects of ethnography and reflexive anthropology and 
you know, interpretive anthropology and reflexivity and dialogic process and all of these things that make anthropology and ethnography much more interesting. And we're also navigating this space around native anthropology and what it means to be someone who looks like the people you study, even if you're not from that specific place. When people see you, they, they think that you're one of them. And so how do you navigate that space when all the courses that you took on anthropology theory, when all the methods, the courses that you took, there's nothing in that that helps you understand how you're supposed to respond in that situation. So you're having to be innovative and you're having to create new ways of doing ethnography, you know, but there are also ethics involved in that that I don't believe are necessarily something that white anthropologists, when they're studying the other, have to deal with. There's the overarching anthropological, you know, code of ethics, but there is a kind of ethical responsibility, you know, that we have to make sure, as John Gwaltney, one of the people in his dry longzo said, to make sure that anthropology is not just another way to call somebody the N-word. You know, that we have to, so when I went into Belize, people would look at me as if to say, so what are you going to do different? And it put to me an extra burden, but also, and not a burden so much as a responsibility, that I had to demonstrate that I was not like the other anthropologists who came, appropriate, went back, got their, they got their privilege based on it, degrees or whatever. And I had to make sure that how I went about doing this said that my commitment was not just about doing the research in order to, to benefit me, but there had to be some benefit to the, the country, to the women. And so that's been part of my enterprise. As a result of that, even though I'm an interpretive anthropologist, my work was used by the Department of Women to respond to CETA, the report to the UN on the convention to eliminate all forms of discrimination about women, against women. Um, there's a book called uh, Women in Politics and Beliefs, and one of the authors said, oh, well, your book was so important to me to sort of lay the foundation because the women's voices start to come through. My book was the second book ever published, you know, on women in Belize. The first was Virginia Kern's Women and the Ancestor. And it's, a, it's, it's a, an important book, but it's a classical kinship study of households. There are no voices in there except the anthropological omniscient voice, right? And so this gives voice to women. And it opens up a space where I'm also in it. So how do I, as a black American, fit into this space and understanding that my very presence changes the dynamics, but also it, it, it forces me to think about identity in a way that I didn't think I was going to have to, because how Belizeans situate me and how they uh, classify me is not how I classify myself. So how I understand blackness in an American context is not how blackness is understood necessarily. They don't see me as Creole, which I thought was sort of the counterpart of African Americans. They see me as Dougla, which is a whole nother category, a mixture of East Indian and black. And so I go in thinking I'm one thing and they telling me I'm something else. And so I then it forces me to stand back and say, well, gee, why is it that I do see myself in this way? Way. Why is it that I assume that the racial category that I've carried in my head and that I've lived with is universal? 
you know, and so I began to then look at systems and think about race and, and gender in very different kinds of ways and understanding that the norms that I'm even researching, like what does a woman's organization look like, right, that it may not fit that and I have to be open to that as a possibility. So all of those things and the notes that I have, I've kept my contracts and my edits and, you know, um, all of these things because those are the treasure troves. You know, what direction was this going in? I must have the very first published paper uh, that I wrote. I must have like a whole file drawer to, of it because it started out thinking that I'm supposed to write anthropology this way. And I was working uh, with Anna Singh at the time. And she finally said, you know, Irma, why don't you just write the way you write? And sort of gave me that permission for me to sort of stylistically bring in that experience that I had from the MFA into anthropology and find a way to blend them to make it my way of writing, which is not necessarily the traditional way that we're taught to do academic articles. And so, I, ha I kept those things because I can track now sort of the starts and the false starts and then finally coming up with um, what was my, my chapter. It was a publishable master's, but it was actually published before I even took my defense. And that is the chapter in uh, uh, Uncertain Terms, Negotiating Gender in American Culture. And that's the chapter called Incongruities, Dissonance and Contradictions in the Life of a Middle-Class Black Woman. I had collected that data way before I even heard of anthropology, before I'd started anthropology. And Anna Singh challenged me to take, I'd taken a reading course on feminist theory, and she challenged me to put the two together. How could I take the data that I collected here and now look at it through the lens of this feminist theory that I was now just sort of engaging with? And out of that grew that perspective, but also in some ways it set the tone for what would become black feminist anthropology. Wow. That's a beautiful history because I think black feminist anthropology is one of those texts that really begins to give black female anthropologists their due. Yes. Um, I think that I, I'm, I'm one of those, I'm one of those anthropologists who was, did anthropology in undergrad okay. and went to my professor and said, are there any black anthropologists? And of course I asked that because none were on the syllabus and none were ever introduced to me. And I think that, I won't mention her name, but I think that she was so embarrassed that then she, she got um, women writing culture. Right. And handed it to me and said, I think there's some in there. <laughs> um, and, and I feel like black feminist anthropology, however, was the first time that I really got introduced to the plethora of yes. black women that are in anthropology. And it's that kind of intervention that I, that kind of political intervention, I would call it a political intervention, that I think your work, your life's work has done. Yes. Because to me, the archive, the, the, the writing, the research, all of it comes together into this, into one, into one tone, into one, um, into one, what, yeah, one tone. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. That really talks about celebrating black women's work. Right. And celebrating black women's contributions. And documenting for prosperity 
the work because I was very intentional that black anthropology, black feminist anthropology was not only this collection, it was actually an archival project. When I thought about it, I, I asked myself, what does this book, what will this book say to, to, to students 50 years from now? And so there, there are two things that are in that that begin to point the direction of the Black Feminist Archive. There's a timeline, okay, and so, in, and I include us in the timeline, so as we're writing it, we now become part of that, that, that history. The second thing I did was to ask each author to contribute a photograph. There are no other academic books because I said, I need people to know who was that person and what they looked like when it, they wrote it at that moment in time. And so you take someone like Dr. Kim, Kimberly Eisen Simmons, you know, who's at the University of South Carolina. Kimberly was writing her dissertation at the same time she was writing this chapter. I wanted to have that intergenerational perspective. You know, and so she'd send me stuff, and I had this 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 fax machine, and she'd send me, and the pages would come out, and I'd do edits, and then I'd fax it back to her, and I'd say, "This is really great, but put it in your dissertation. You're supposed to theorize. This is not an ethnography of your your work. It is a theory. You're supposed to theorize about what this work means and why you did this particular kind of research as opposed to some other kind and how is that connected to your personal history. So the question that they were to answer is what in your personal history has led you to do the kind of anthropology that you do? You know, and so people, and, and I said, and I want you to, to, to use an autoethnographic form. And so for some people, they, we had had a panel, and some people just literally threw out what they had and started over again. They were like the late Angela Gilliam. She just passed away at the end of September. You know, she said, I've always wanted to do like a travel log. And so if you read her piece, you know, she takes us to Papua New Guinea. She takes us to Paris. She takes us to Brazil. And in that, she's doing the way in which this global perspective of black women, the negative perspective, travels across these geographies. I mean, it's, it's immensely powerful. Kimberly Simmons is in the Dominican Republic where she's a light-skinned black woman who is involved in women's groups. Part of that is that she was involved in sororities and was her grandmother and her mother. And so she's interested in this collective, but people keep trying to do to her what they did to me. They want to locate her in their racial, you know, system. And so she kept saying, I'm black. And they're like, no, no, it's possible. You can't be black to us Indios, you know. You can't be black because Dominicans are not black, at least in the sort of historical narrative, identity narrative they, they've created under Trujillo because blacks are Haitian and they're not Haitian, you know. And so she's trying to, you know, she's talking about what that means in terms of how she is perceived and how she interacts and then what she does with that in terms of the research. I think that's, that's again, that's one of the most amazing contributions we've had in anthropology, I believe. I believe that it really shifted the conversation um, and by making black women visible. Yes. In ways that we were not visible before, to be quite frank. Um, not because we weren't there. Right. But because people refused to see us. That's right. And so I think that that to me, that to me is just a summary of the kind of work that you do. I know that we don't have much time, but I want to ask you one last question. Okay. 
And that last question is this, as somebody who has this amazing archive, if there was one person that you've had in your archive that you would want people to cite, who you think has been overlooked, who would it be? Wow. Well, part of it is that we're just building the archive, so we're in the process of collecting. Uh, I would see someone like Archie Jones, who is this 94-year-old woman. But back when I was actually the editor of Transforming Anthropology, uh, there was a woman who got in touch with me, too, who was an elderly black anthropologist who sent me a couple of, you know, examples of her paper. And that's who I want to discover. And so today at the conference, uh, one of the, the people came to me and said, you know, there's a, there's a guy here who's talking about they have a garage full of someone's papers and they're not quite sure what to do with it. They don't want it to go here. They don't want it to go there. And I said, here's my card. So it's really the undiscovered black women, the women who don't have big names. That's who I want. So I don't have a, I don't have a name because their name is not in the headlights. Their names are not on the marquee. But I want to be able to have a place like for Mother's Day where I encourage women to send me in photographs of them and their mothers or letters or cards or anything that they think so that there is some illustration of black love, of, for, of black, the love that black women have for their children. Because what gets put in the media is somehow that it's always kind of dysfunctional. And I know that that's not true. You know, uh, today I posted something on Facebook and my, with myself and my colleague, Dr. Keisha Scott, who is putting her papers in there. And I have been in some ways encouraging her <clears throat> to do this for a number of years. And she said <clears throat> she had never thought about her papers in that way. But I posted a photograph of her and I, and my daughter wrote a note that said, these are the two women who've been really important to me, my mother and my auntie Keisha. I mean, we're not, we're, we're fictive kin. And for her to just, just make that comment, you know, we both felt very warm because it was our, my daughter recognizing, you know, the power of our relationship. And in the presentation that we gave the workshop, someone came to us and said, you know, what you did was fabulous, but it was really seeing the dynamic and the way the two of you work together that was most powerful for me. We don't get a chance to see those relationships. And so I want to collect those things that tell us about women's relationships, you know, and not just to each other, but also men. So I have someone I grew up with from the projects and his mother-in-law who just passed was a black wave. She was in the military before de desegregation. And so he has photographs and he had begun to like collect materials. And I said, I have a home for that. You know, so there's going to be some place where he knows that material can live forever. So the archive is not just about the specific individual, but who were they connected to? We want that material too. Men, women, trans, you know, all of that is possible, you know, and that's, that's the power of it. And then history is told often through archives. They have to write a different kind of history because they can't say they don't know. Absolutely. Because the material will be there. That is so beautiful. Thank you. I think that that, I'm speechless after that because I think that that is just, that it just encapsulates so much about what we need now um, to be able to preserve not only our history, but 
our humanity. Yes. And and I think that to me that that is a project that will truly bring life and love to our community. Um, and our community, when I say our community, I think the diaspora. Yes. I'm not just talking about our immediate communities that we may be familiar with, but bringing us all together in conversation with one another um, so that we can start to, to really value each other's words and contributions. And if you look at it, that is something that black people have been doing for a lo very long time. We've been the healers, we've been the connectors, we've been the people who've tried to put the pain aside so that we can connect. And I think that once we begin to archive our work, that the evidence of that will be much more visible than it is now. You know, now it looks episodic, but I think that there's a story there. Uh, and I think that once we have the documentation of it, then people can't deny its reality. That is so beautiful. Dr. McLaurin, thank you so much. You're welcome. For your thank wisdom, you. <laughs> for your words, and for your contributions. Appreciate it. Thanks for asking me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sight Black Women. Follow us at Sight Black Women on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and our new website, www.sightblackwomencollective.org. And remember, it's simple. Sight Black Women. We theorize, we produce, we revolutionize the world. Thank you.